This is a talk by Todd Corbett, titled Sweet Little Babies, recorded April 26, 2009, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, as I mentioned, I got a question in the question box from Vip, and I'll read it to you. Here's the question. You express, since your awakening, a deep and compassionate affection for all created things, whether they be sentient beings or inanimate objects, or even thoughts, memories, perceptions. You refer to these products of the mind sometimes as sweet little babies, with the implication that each has its own life cycle of birth, a passing apparent existence, and finally, annihilation. So the question is, is this gentle and simple loving of our own mind stuff actually a practice? And any tips for cultivating detachment as we practice a loving gratitude for all of creation? It's actually a very beautiful question. Thank you, Viv. Appreciate it. So let's look at the components of this. Several different things here prior to his question. He says, You express since your awakening a deep and compassionate affection for all created things. Do I? There is definitely something like that going on. Who's doing it? Who would that be? Something does it. Something's doing it constantly. Now, as we say at the center, consciousness is all there is. Well, consciousness loves to create. All of this. Moment to moment. Everything that arises is a form of consciousness. And therefore, how could it not love it? It is it. It's very being. And then, the next part, he says, whether they be sentient beings or inanimate objects, or even thoughts, memories, perceptions, and yes, notice your thoughts, random, mundane thoughts. They are all expressions of the one. They are the one, showing itself in that moment and then passing away, never to be seen again. No repetition here. Everything is new, always in every moment. And then he says, you refer to these products of the mind sometimes as sweet little babies, with the implication that each has its own life cycle of birth, a passing apparent existence, and finally, annihilation. Now, 
I confess to the sweet little baby part. <laughs> um, but I'm not so sure about the implications uh, that each has its own life cycle of birth, of passing apparent existence, and finally annihilation. Not that that is not apparently what's going on, but what I mean is that's not the real implication of this, the sweet little babies. The implication is in the love of it in that moment. All the rest is just, you know, window dressing. The sweet little babies part, I'll talk about that more later, but basically it, it is something that I discovered on my path in the midst of difficult times and some very powerful mind states that were impossible for me to fathom. I, they, were, they were killing me. That was, that was the sense I had at the time. And then the final question, or the question here is, is this gentle and simple loving of our own mind stuff actually a practice? And any tips for cultivating detachment as we practice a loving gratitude for all of creation? And yes, it is practice. It is a practice. It's a very organic practice. And it's organic because it actually comes out of our own nature. It is, it is a practice that is inspired by our own nature. It is the enlightened intent behind all of our practice, all of our arid tedious mental practice. Behind all of that is this heart. The heart of oneness. What we truly are. Love is the inherent energy or energetic tension of wholeness. We feel it. We're always wanting love. We're always wanting to feel that more. Our awareness, this very ordinary awareness that we experience constantly in our lives, is love. That's what it is. It's wholeness. It is unconditioned wholeness what's looking out through your eyes right now. We think we know what it is. And in thinking that we know what it is, we obstruct it. Whatever appears is a quality of awareness. It is awareness. It is wholeness. Whatever we see, whatever we feel, in that moment of arising, that is our wholeness, right there, showing itself. It doesn't matter. It can be smelly. It can be rude. Wholeness, right there. It is our true heart, this wholeness. Our true self. 
though it may express itself, you know, as a chair or a window, a wall or a person, it remains whole. Awareness itself, it has no quality. So we say, well, yes, it does. It has the quality of a window. And a, and a, but awareness in its nakedness, there are no attributes to it except for what it is. What is it? It is aware. That's it. And that is what all of this is. Without awareness, this does not exist. None of it. Whatever you see in your attention is your own awareness. Your attention, we say, well, put your attention on that, that uh, fire extinguisher over there. But when you put your attention there, you're really not putting your attention there. That fire extinguisher in that moment is your attention. Attention is your awareness. It's focused awareness. And whatever you see, whatever you experience, is that awareness. So our sense of being a separate self, that sense is equally an expression of this awareness. But it's kind of like we have a river that's flowing and we get like a little twig in there and it creates a little eddy that starts to spin. And that eddy develops self-consciousness and it begins to identify with itself. Spinning, spinning, spinning. In our case, we spin thoughts. But primarily we spin we, we spin emotions. The emotions are the sense of separateness that we feel. We cannot feel that wholeness, that, that warmth, the wholeness, because we're separate now. We're identified with something separate. But we struggle with it because we sense that some of this is the wholeness, so we grab on to things that feel good and push away things that don't feel good. And this is how our sense of self begins to grow, become stronger. We develop deep emotional ties to it. And then it's very hard to see the river flowing all around us because we feel separate from it. And to us, that river, wow, it, it's scary. It's a big river. We're in this little, just right there in the middle of it, and it's frightening, it's scary. So the process of awakening is awakening out of this, this little eddy, this spin. We awaken out of our sense of self. It's like we've been dreaming that we're separate. Now, 
It sounds like, well, awareness just ought to knock it off, because we suffer a lot. But awareness loves to express itself, and, it ex- and, it, and it's this kind of exuberance of expression. We wouldn't want it to stop. That's what our life is. Everything that's arising. Just feel yourself sitting there. The sense of you being there is is the experience of arising and passing away. The very sense of all sensation is this flowing, moving, bubbling of the old dying away and the new being born in that moment, being born, being born, being born. Always new. And so things feel, we can experience things precisely because they are passing away and being born moment to moment. So creation is an act of love, obviously. We're being given all this. It's free. It's just bubbling up. Here we are. Quite amazing. When Muhammad asked Allah, why he created all of this, he was told, I was a treasure that longed to be known. This is. God knows herself through all of this. God loves to see herself in all creation, in all of these forms. And just look around. You see something that's just amazing. Doesn't take much. A window, for example, or your breath. All of these things take on totally new meaning when we begin to recognize what they are, or more precisely, what they are not. They are not a thing, they are not separate. We begin to notice that the very seeing of a thing is showing us the total unity of what is there. So we have taken these distinctions, this play, we've taken these distinctions and we have taken them to be real. And we we begin to feel like we have awareness. Feel your own awareness. But you don't have awareness. All of your experience is arising in awareness. Nobody sees or is aware of awareness. Only awareness is aware. But we believe we exist as separateness. We believe it. The beliefs, thoughts, we feel happy when we get what we want. We feel whole only because we're no longer wanting something. So we struggle all the time. Whenever we actually get what we want for a moment, there is just this peace. We go, oh, finally got it. And then... There's just this joy for a moment. 
And we think that it's the thing that we got that made the difference. No. It's just that we are not wanting. We are not wanting. That sense of separateness is driving it. And as long as we're separate, we're always wanting something. Wanting to live. Wanting to be a person. It's a very amazing process. When it feels unhappy, that is when it is wanting. So we're already whole. This is the is the puzzle. We're already whole. We are that wholeness. And yet, we don't know it. How is it that this could be? And this is probably the greatest mystery of all. How can we be deluded in this way? But in fact, if if awareness consciousness did not make a really good image, it wouldn't be a very, well, it wouldn't be a good image. It's kind of like with a play. If you had a bunch of schlock uh, actors out there just kind of holding up their script and stumbling over their lines, it wouldn't be a very good play. And the same is true with us in our lives. We, you know, this whole thing with all the tense moments and the big deals and those grand moments when we have a, a, a wedding or uh, a birthday or a birth or whatever. These all seem so real and so important. We don't want to take that away from them. Awakening is not about getting rid of anything. We just want to know who we are, what we are, and then we can appreciate those things perfectly. So how do we recognize our wholeness? How do we recognize that we are the love that we seek? You know, all that we're seeking to be happy, that one thing. We're it. We don't know that. So there are two things that we can do to begin to recognize our own wholeness. The first thing that we can do, or the first thing that we need to do, is to recognize the futility of wanting. Of all our worldly pursuits, to achieve happiness, to actually see that it is all flawed, that it will never work, that it has never worked. We will never reach that point where we feel better. It maybe will last for a brief period of time, but it will not last for long. Abiding happiness through worldly pursuits is not possible. Now, I can say that all day, but only you can recognize this. And the way you recognize this is to start to pay attention in your life and notice when you think you're happy, 
Notice what makes you happy. You know, the ice cream cone, whatever. I finally got it. Yes, it's got little nuts on it. It's really good. And then, it's gone. And there's that kind of funny taste in your mouth. <laughs> you know. It's gone. And all of that leading up to it, it's gone. A lot of pizzazz going on. It's empty. So then we must see, once we get that part of it, then we must see the real magnitude of the problem. We have a lot of ideas, a lot of stories. They're not the problem. The problem is these deep emotional attachments that we have. These deep emotions that we have are connected to wanting certain things so that we'll feel better. And we've, we've, it's sort of like we have taken them to be our wholeness. And we need to kind of decondition those things. We decondition them through paying attention. Now, much of, our, much of the deconditioning process, I might add here, is that by seeing the utter futility of things in the first place, we have done a big piece of the work. It requires attention. So, these, these deep emotional attachments that we have tend to reify things in our moment-to-moment experience. And this is the problem that we get into. Even though we may see that everything is futile, we still are caught in this trap. Moment-to-moment conditioning is driving us along. We may see this, but there's nothing that we can do to stop it. It is these deep emotional attachments that reify our experience. You cannot tell a self that it is imaginary. It doesn't work. I've tried. <laughs> it doesn't work. Well, except for, you know, Hui Ning. He was one of those guys that, well, he went to the marketplace. This was a guy that had never been to school. He was basically just a woodcutter. And he, he was hauling some wood. And he was at the marketplace and he overheard, I think it was the Diamond Sutra being read, and it was, he heard part of it, maybe he listened to the whole thing, I don't know. And he was done. He woke up. So there's a guy that you just, you just tell him. And they go, oh, okay. <laughs> That's somewhat unlikely for most of us, because we have so much conditioning, attachment. So, um, what we come up against then with these attachments is preferences. Here's a quote by Zen Master Singstan. says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When hope and fear are both absent, Everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, 
and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. So if we have a lot of really strong emotional attachments to things, well, those, uh, those preferences, those attachments are setting us apart from our wholeness. So the way to expose attachments is through practices of committed attention. We, we meditate on the breath or anything really to stabilize our attention so that when we are feeling something, we notice when the feeling suddenly goes into thought. In our normal, uh, unstable mind, we have a feeling and we have a thought. We have another feeling and another thought and another feeling. And we don't even notice that that's happening. It's just, we're just churning along. But when we begin to start to see how these things are playing off of one another, then we develop a little space in there. We start to see what is arising each time very different. We, our, our identification with these processes starts to drop away a little bit. It's not as alluring. It's not as much me as it was before. Now, all attachments manifest as grasping, aversion, and apathy. This is the way attachments work with us. And often they play off of one another. So when we're paying attention with our meditation, it is very helpful right off to notice how we start to grasp, how we start to resist, and how we begin to become apathetic. How we just kind of want to go to sleep, or bored, whatever. The greatest place to see this is, is right there when you sit to meditate. We have a lot of hope. We have a lot of, you know, we're kind of grasping at, at this idea of, wow, I feel really bad. Meditation's going to help me. And so we finally we get on our cushion and we're meditating. And we're having some really good, clear states there at first, and then the mind starts going, and we won't even know it for 10 minutes. We've just been off to the Bahamas and we realize, oh my God. And so then we go, okay, that's right, I'm supposed to just, okay. So we just let that go, and I just hang out, okay, yeah, there. Now we're having a good one. You see, grasping, right there, grasping. Because we're grasping, we start, we're, we're obliterating our meditation, and then thoughts all over the place, grasping, we're hungry, you know, or sleepy. Aversion. And then finally we just throw up our hands and go, oh, I think I'm going to take a nap. And that's apathy. So right there, you see the three of them are playing off of one another. So stability of mind comes from doing the practice regardless of this. Maybe I, maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night. I'll just go ahead and take a nap. And then when I get up from the net, I'm going to do this little sitting. So I get up, I do the sitting. And I watch and the mind goes all over the place. Fine. Just, you notice. You notice grasping. 
ah, this becomes the meditation. You know, you start out, you're just doing the breath. It's just to, to, to establish stability. But after a while, you then start to use that stability to discern what's arising in this moment. Thoughts arise, feelings arise, and you see grasping. Oh, grasping. And then you go, wow, I'm getting it now. <laughs> and right there, you see, you're grasping. But you didn't see at that time. And so, suddenly your meditation falls apart again. And then you eventually, if you just persevere, you begin to see the old tricks. You go, ah, I see you, you know, it's like the Buddha. I see the house builder now. This house builder can never again fool me. Because every time I start to see any kind of an emotion like that and I identify with it, all I'm doing is I'm deluding myself. I see it. And this is the process of relinquishing these, these attachments. Now, it sounds like we're getting rid of our attachments, doesn't it? You know, we were talking about loving the, loving the sweet little babies, attachments, mind states. We are loving them. It's not like we're trying to get rid of them. In fact, if we're trying to get rid of them, what are we doing? We're grasping. So it isn't about trying to get rid of anything. We're letting them be there. We're not pushing them away. If we feel that energy of grasping, there it is, a sweet little baby. We just let it be there. We hold it. It's suffering. It's suffering because we have pulled our attention away from it. We are pushing it away. It wants to show itself. The little baby's starting to holler. So we just hold it. And in the process of holding it with our attention, it then can be what it wants to be. It, it can then be freed back into the flow of the river. Freed. So just by being aware of it in that way, it's no longer yours. You see, this is the problem we have. We think that this... this uh, feeling of grasping is our feeling. It's not. It has its own nature. We are just aware of it. But we identify with it as we, as we pull away. And in that way, we <coughs> create this sense of it being me. So by, by allowing them to be there, we give them space. And that is so wonderful, because in that space, then we see them more and more clearly. This is love. This is love. We're loving our little babies. That's what we're doing. In a poem by Khalil Gibran, one of the passages is, if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. It's just so true. When we have pain, sorrow, it's so rich. It is so beautiful. 
when we are not fixated on it as, as a self, as a self-story. How do we keep our heart in wonder at the daily miracles of our life? It's just like the window. The hand, you know? The band-aid here. Not alley. Nothing is what the mind tells us it is. As we look at things with this fresh mind of awareness, things are very different. Things are alive. When we infuse experience with awareness, we begin to recognize life. Our beliefs about everything are what keep us from actually seeing what is here. Now, I'm not saying we should throw away all of our beliefs because they function for us but they're not the truth and they never will be the truth. Thought cannot tell us the truth. I mean, I'm here jabbering away. I'm not telling you the truth. I'm pointing. This is pointing. And that's all it can ever be. The Buddha, Christ, all of the great mystics, none of them ever said the truth. None of them. The truth is not stated point. So if you believe a thing is separate from you, you will grasp it, you will avoid it, or you will ignore it. Something to keep in mind. And if you don't, those three things are not possible. We live in a perpetual inner poverty that strives to feel better. Trying to fix that hole. Trying to be whole. <laughs> this inner poverty derives from our identity with the story of I. Yet, when you look to find this I, this me, what do you find? You find sensations. You find more sensations. You find thoughts. You find more thoughts. Feelings, emotions, all kinds of images. But when you really look with this discerning, stable attention, you won't find one. There is not one there. Awareness has no qualities except for awareness. In the words of Rumi, a nothing at all has waylaid a nothing at all. We think we are someone. We have all of these images. They're imaginary. And they are waylaying this sense of me. And so we spin around and around. It's like they're married and they just go on and on and on spinning, creating this kind of like, the, you know, when you 
take a sparkler and do this. After a while, it looks like you've got a big fiery circle. But it requires looking, because until we look, we don't see that it's just a fiery circle being created moment to moment by spinning, 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 spinning thoughts. Though we must look for ourselves. We must let all attributes of self-sense show themselves completely. And what are these attributes? Well, we have all of these things that we just talked about, plus we have all these heavy emotions like anger, jealousy, happiness, fear, confusion, bewilderment, uh, contentedness. All of these emotions, seeing them as they actually are, allows us to recognize our intrinsic wholeness. It is not easy, however, when we feel angry to look at anger or when we're embarrassed. You know those moments where you just... Those are the moments to see it. In the words of Simone Weil, she says, it is at those moments when we are in a bad mood when we feel incapable of the elevation of soul that befits holy things, it is then that it is most effectual to turn our eyes towards perfect purity. For it is then that mediocrity comes to the surface of the soul and is in the best position for being burned by contact with the fire. What she's saying is those moments that are difficult for us those are the times to really see. Those are the times that we have a lot of energy. If that emotion is seen in that, in that instant, clearly, with stable attention, that energy from that emotion will go directly into your awareness. The awareness itself will be energized in that moment. And you will see more clearly. Everything just brightens up in that moment. So there's great value in bringing your attention right into the midst of those heavy emotions when they happen. But that is only possible if we practice and develop this stable attention through day-to-day -day practice and through mindfulness through the course of the day, which we can do with... Uh, using preset practices, or in the case of uh, what we were talking about earlier, the Lojong sayings, you can bring those into your day. These are all ways of bringing attention into what is here, because we are being told constantly that we are a person, a separate individual, and that the person that we're talking to is a separate individual, and all this is separateness. And there is no wholeness. And that is the prevailing belief of worldliness. That's what we've come to believe. That's what belief is. We want to cut through this belief. It's the fire of heartful attention she's talking about. She says, um, 
For it is then that mediocrity comes to the surface of the soul and is in the best position for being burned by contact with the fire. The fire of attention, of awareness. I can tell you from my own experience of meditating for years before I, before I was confronted with some very difficult times. And I remember I look back on the, those years of practice and they were just nothing. They, they did no good. It wasn't cutting through. And there is this beat poet, Jack Kerouac. You guys know who Jack Kerouac. Probably a lot of people here do. He was a, uh, back in the 50s, wasn't it? He was, and he wrote a lot of really great stuff. And he was a spiritual guy. He was on a kind of a spiritual path. But he never really followed through. And, and well, let me just read you um, something uh, that he wrote. He had just had the sense that he was about to have a breakthrough, a spiritual breakthrough. And he went up on a mountain in the wilderness. And he got up there and he meditated. And he was ready to see God. He was going to see the face of God. Buddha, right there. And what he wrote when he came back down, he was kind of sad. He wrote, I came face to face with myself. No liquor, no drugs, no chance of faking it. But what I found was I was face to face with hateful old me. Kind of sad. <laughs> and that was the point, you see. He could have, right there, he saw it. He saw it. He saw hateful old me. That's what we see. That's, people meditate for a long time before they see that. Once you see that selfish me, wow. It's like, you see it everywhere. You go through it. You don't turn away. This is your opportunity. This is... This is food for practice. All of those deep emotions that we were just talking about, right there. And he dropped it right there. He just went back. Ah, but, you know, maybe it inspired more wonderful writing. It's a teaching for us no matter how you go. And he's already the wholeness. So it really, it just requires a commitment to be with that hateful old me. And then we get to see what's really here. So whenever expectation or wanting ceases, like when we've been just sitting with our aversions and our grasping and our apathy, and, we, you know, and the expectation drops away, we're no longer wanting. We're whole. That's wholeness. A simple appreciation fills that gap. Appreciation. But whenever we want a mind state to pass, like, I want to feel better so I can appreciate. I want this feeling I have right now to go so that I can appreciate. This is the way we fool ourselves. That mind state is one of those little sweet babies. That's what they are. And we want to be with it. And so it's, it's an act of love. 
You can't make yourself love. Love is already what you are, and the more you try to love, of course, you can't, because you're impeding the loving. You're impeding it. But when you just let be, the love is already there. It is what we are. So, when we glimpse that beliefs are tentative, as we, as we do practices and we just keep singing, you know, I think that's a hand, yes. But then when we look, we see, well, no, it's visual phenomena and we have a story about this being a hand. What is it really? Well, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I don't know. We come to that. We, it just, it's, it's our basic experience. We don't know what any of this is. We have superimposed beliefs on all of it. We've laid a big template out over the world, or what we call the world. That's another template. Um, when we see this, that rigidity in your heart softens. You become humble. Humility. Humility really is selflessness. Appreciation. Appreciation and humility go nicely together. When we infuse experience with awareness, this compassionate gesture, well, here's a quote from Simone Weil once again. She says, The effort that brings a soul to salvation is like the effort of looking or of listening. It is the kind of effort by which a fiancé accepts her lover in an act of attention and consent. Now, in Tibetan Buddhism, sending and taking is a way of opening your heart and allowing compassion to flow. You're basically just feeling emotions in other people and you are seeing your sameness with them. You're recognizing your sameness with them. And it's a very powerful practice and highly recommended. So on my path, I'll just kind of tell you my little story to kind of answer the rest of this question. On my path, I was having a lot of grief. I had, well, I had a son that died. Um, he was 18, went out, got in a big accident, and it was dreadful. And then I was totally wiped out by that. Two years later, my wife and I, that had been married for 20 years, split up. And this is just like a descending, it's like, doing a, a dive here, emotionally. And then I found this other woman, about a year and a half later, I found this woman at the center, um, Bonnie, and we became close. Uh, and then she got sick and died. And so these things were happening at two, two year intervals. Two years after that, I found another woman 
And uh, we were starting to have, I was a little apprehensive at this point, so was she. <laughs> uh, and, um, <laughs> but this is crazy because she died in a, in a mudslide. And this was two years after the previous, about two and a half years after the previous one. And so, and several other friends died in that one. So I, every time I thought I was kind of getting over the grief and not getting over the grief, well, back down in. And then my brother had a massive stroke two years later. And then about two, year, two and a half years later, he committed suicide. So all of these things worked together to create a place where I couldn't deal with them. But I was coming to the center regularly. And in the process of being at the center and getting practices from Joel, I was able to work with most of this. I had a lot of techniques and things that really helped. But I got to a point where no techniques worked anymore. And I would sit. I would sit for hours with sorrow. And I would be like a softball in my throat. And the feeling of queasiness in my guts. And I just, this was what this, and I just felt like, well, it's going to just take me. I, and, and I began to resolve in that way. I began to go, okay, well, it's killing me. I could feel it. It was just it's, this feeling like life was just being drained out of me. But it was just letting it be. Letting it be for a long time. Just letting it be. But it was like a technique still. And then, and I'm not sure what, I think it was the practice of Tonglen actually that triggered this in me, but I suddenly noticed that this feeling was like a suffering creature. This sense in my, I could feel it. It was like a, ah, just a suffering sense of horror kind of. And I noticed it as a creature. And it was, this is where this whole thing about, you know, holding the sweet little babies and I began to recognize they want love. They want to be held in awareness. They don't want to be pushed away. And I'm, of course, I'm always wanting to feel better. I want to feel better. So I'm sitting with it. Well, that's absurd. Trying to push it away. So now it's sort of coming from an opposite place. Still sitting with it. But now it's this this affection, this warmth would start to bubble up. And it was just a matter of days and all of this stuff just was gone. So I, I think we pretty much have covered the gist of what I wanted to say in answering your question. Is, is there any other aspect of it that, that uh, you'd like some clarification on real quick? I don't think so. I think the, the last piece about detachment you just covered by saying just be with it, just sit with it. And be with it with heart. With heart. Bring your heart into this. You know, until you recognize this is life and death, then you're really not practicing well. Uh, if anyone has questions or comments about any of this, please.
Yes. Your very last comment, Todd, I think with, until you realize this is life or death, I want to be sure I'm not misunderstanding the importance of holding everything, those things that come up chronically in, in love is very, very important. A matter of life or death, what exactly, I think I know exactly what you meant, but I'm, I'm not sure uh, that you could, you could waste the next 10 years having these things come up and just suffering for a long, essentially a whole rest of your life, and then, uh, or it could be done in a matter of days. It's, Unfortunately, we have words, and I use them. Um, but when I speak of life, and death, when I speak of life and death, death is wow. Living as a machine in a world of form, as a as its separateness, and this is what we do. We live in our habituations. This is death. Life is wholeness. That's what this is, and so that's what I'm referring to. Like yes. Any other questions or comments? I was interested. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> comment you made about halfway through about, uh, for, by the way, this isn't your awareness. Yeah. And I suppose you, we could even turn that around and say that you, what we think of as you or me, we're objects in awareness. Yes. Know, we're floating around in it, or whatever you want, however you want to come at it. Uh -huh. And it's it's kind of mysterious because I can look at Hiromi and I can see well obviously she's a body and then there's all this delusion and she thought <laughs> <laughs> she thinks you know that she's Hiromi and that she's a self and that she's wandering around taking care of kids. How do you know that? How do I know that? Um, this is all pure imagination, yeah, pure fantasy. Um, but it does correspond to some of the fantasies I've had over on this side of the room. Ah. And, uh, are all, aren't all of your fantasies on this side of the room, though? Well, no, they cover the whole gamut. Ah. <laughs> and it seems like, you know, once I, once I sort of get out here and I'm seeing Hiromi, then I can sort of turn around and look back, so to speak, and see, well, this guy is just, you know, has his body and he has his imagination about being himself, and he's wandering around doing things too. And it kind of clarifies it for me a little bit. All of these little things that you describe are useful. Those are very useful ways of kind of, it's sort of like worming your way down into this. But at some point, all of those images and stories are recognized to be only, only means to see. It's sort of like, because we have so many confusing delusions floating around, we need to use our delusions kind of to extract other delusions. And that's kind of what we do. It's sort of like having a, we get a thorn and we're out in the woods with another little knife. We get another thorn and we use that thorn to pluck out the first thorn. So it's the same kind of thing. We use thoughts and images and stories to, and it's kind of what we do with practices, you know, sit and look at your breath. Well, there is no breath apart from the awareness of it. But we, are, we utilize 
these, um, these practices to help us see that. So, wonderful though. Thank you, Wesley. Yes, Megan. I've heard you speak before like, about topics like this. And before, you've always stressed that we need to look at what we're feeling or seeing or experiencing in the moment. And I think that's a really important. We can only see it in the moment. There is no other time. So, you're just saying that maybe I should have emphasized that. Isn't that also part of this? It is, absolutely. That if, yes. if we're sitting on a mountaintop experiencing this hateful me, mm -hmm. we can't really experience that later when we're sitting and having a cup of green tea in our living room. We have to, like, face it right then. But then, of course, we can feel that when we're sitting with our cup of tea, awesome. But it's true, whenever it arises, that is when we become aware of it. Thinking about it is not actually experiencing it as it is in the moment. And that's really what mindfulness practice is. I didn't focus so much on the nitty gritty of practice here, trying to get the other point in. Yeah. I would just like to say that I very much appreciate your style of presenting and that uh, you should not try to speed up in the interest of delivering more information. I think it's so wonderful that you take those pauses and you make the gestures because that's a language other than words and uh, it really helps. Thank you. Appreciate that. Peace to you all.